Welcome to the Farm Bits podcast. Farm Bits is proudly produced by the Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture team and hosted by students at the University of Nebraska. The Farm Bits podcast comes to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews with experts, producers, and innovators from across the agriculture industry, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello, Farm Bits followers and first-time listeners. Welcome to the Farm Bits podcast. I'm Taylor Cross. And I'm Jackson Stansel, and we're excited to have you join us for this episode as we continue on in our spring 2022 series covering autonomy and robotics in crop and livestock production. We welcome two guests with us today, UNL's own Dr. Santosh Pitla and Utah State Dr. Sierra Young to this episode of the Farm Bits podcast. Both of these professors have had multiple years of experience in research surrounding autonomous solutions and robotics in the agriculture industry. In this episode, we discuss Dr. Pitla and Dr. Young's research projects utilizing autonomy, the advancements in robotics within agriculture, and the expansion of these solutions in industry. With that background, let's jump into our interview with these two outstanding professors and research specialists. So I started my undergrad in mechanical back in India, and then I went to Kentucky, got my PhD in agriculture engineering. And after that, I went to Ohio State for one year as a postdoc. And uh, I came to UNL in 2014, um, and I do research and uh, teaching both uh, in mechanized systems management and ag engineering programs. Um, So yeah, since uh, 2014, I have been focusing on autonomous vehicles and robotic systems, primarily for row crop production. Awesome. And Dr. Young, how about you? Yeah, so I had a meandering path to ag engineering. I actually did structural engineering as an undergrad and then wanted to kind of switch my field. Um, And that's why I pursued grad school. I started off in all my degrees are in civil and environmental engineering, kind of looking at sustainability, but ended up getting into the use of UAVs or drones and aquatic vehicles for understanding the environment and um, saw a lot of opportunity in agriculture and pursued uh, positions in ag engineering, um, kind of the intersection between ag and biological and environmental systems and um, did all my graduate work at the University of Illinois, spent a year or two at Iowa State University in their biosystems and ag engineering department. And then three years at North Carolina State University, and now I've been at Utah State for about a month. Wow. Working in, yeah, environmental field robotics, again, kind of environment and ag applications. Very cool. It's it's interesting that both of you kind of are coming into this whole thing from outside of an agricultural uh, background, Mm -hmm. which I think offers offers some good perspective. Um, And you probably have good perspective on the next question that we wanted to ask, which is what is your favorite project in the past that you have uh, worked on? And maybe this time we'll start with uh, Dr. Young. Yeah, that's a tough question because a lot of the projects are so different and I, you know, they're all quite fun for different reasons. Um, Probably a favorite project is actually still ongoing working with uh, my doctoral student who's still at North Carolina State um, and he's developing a UAV, unoccupied aerial vehicle for um, towards autonomous pollination, controlled pollinations in the forestry industry. So um, it's kind of exciting because I think we're one of the first groups to kind of try to build this type of platform and um, really starting from the ground up, developing new systems, integrating them with the platform, scaling up from lab to field studies. So it's kind of been a 
overarching project from really concept through development um, and still ongoing. So that's been really exciting. That is extremely interesting. What about you, Dr. Pitla? Yeah, I think uh, just like Sierra, many projects, but if I have to pick one, it has to be uh, our current project on uh, a Flexro robotic vehicle. So um, it's a 60 horsepower robotic vehicle. Uh, it's just like fascinating to see it go through the row crops and collecting images autonomously. Uh, but also uh, we have plans to do a lot more operations with it. Uh, so it's a very modular platform. So. Uh, if I had to pick that, that's the one. <laughs> that's a very special project for me. Sure. That's really cool. Um, so I know Dr. Young kind of mentioned um, coming in from a different area in agriculture, what kind of sparked her interest. But um, would you, both of y'all just share maybe like what kind of sparked your interest into going into like specifically like autonomy and robotics in agriculture? Was there like a moment that you were like, oh, this is pretty cool? Yeah. So yeah, when I started my master's in Kentucky, I started in mechanical engineering. Uh, but then I got an opportunity to visit the ag engineering department, and I was just fascinated with uh, how much technology used in U.S. agriculture, because coming from India, so I, I didn't uh, do much in agriculture. It, it was more mechanical and cars and automotive sector. But uh, when I came to the U.S., I was just fascinated with the amount of sensors and controls and uh, computing that is used in agriculture. So that that really attracted me uh, to get into this field. Yeah. Cool. And Dr. Young, is there a specific um, event that kind of triggered your interest into autonomy? Yeah, it was definitely a project where we were using UAVs and surface vehicles for data collection in an agriculture intensive watershed. So doing more surface water investigations, but all of this was kind of very closely tied to agriculture activity. And so that sparked my interest in, in field robotics. And then in grad school, I you know was in a different department, but um, had an opportunity to work on a uh, a project that we were developing a ground-based vehicle for phenotyping. And so I kind of had the field robotics experience and seeing, you know, being in an, in an agricultural field for the first time, looking at all the, you know, it looks simple, but really it's quite complex and all the opportunities and challenges associated with developing machinery, operating um, in those types of conditions, working with the data. It was, it was just really interesting. And I was like, oh, I, I want to keep doing this. Um, I found it you know, the, a lot of opportunity, a lot of challenges. It was it was exciting. Every day was different. Um, so I kind of fell in love with that application of kind of the tools and technologies that I was using in a different um, in a different way. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's so interesting all the different applications that are out there, and I think all the complexity that comes with each you know individual application of autonomy and robotics. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we really wanted to uh, address this topic on the Farm Bits podcast this spring is the main focus of our series. But another thing that we've been wanting to focus on uh, here this spring on the Farm Bits podcast has kind of been diversity uh, within agriculture. Um, and so we have a, an initiative right now with the Women in Agriculture group here uh, at the University of Nebraska to, to feature a couple of uh, female ag entrepreneurs uh, from the state on the podcast this spring. But one question that I also want to ask both of you kind of being maybe, you know, not exactly what you would expect to be the traditional individual who's working on tech in ag. Uh, were there any challenges that you faced maybe as a female engineer, Dr. Young or, or Dr. Pitla, you know, coming from India and maybe, you know, being more of a minority representative within the agriculture industry? Um, I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit more about your experiences getting to where you are now. 
Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there haven't been specific events that I can think of that were like this was a, you know, a barrier, but I guess just generally thinking about my experience, it's the most obvious and ongoing thing is just kind of looking around and noticing that you're one of a very small number of women and minority agricultural engineers, and if not, sometimes the only, um, which can be kind of an intimidating feeling. Um, but I think I've been very, very lucky and I've been able to surround myself with really supportive colleagues um, in the space. I think it's growing and there's a lot of attention, a lot of folks um, kind of entering, getting involved in the space. And that's been, you know, myself included, and that's been really exciting. Um, and also being able to find communities, you mentioned women in ag, I was very involved with Society of Women Engineers. You can kind of see other successful people working in the spaces that you're in um, has been kind of, you know, and having really supportive advisors throughout my career, encouraging me to do things that maybe I didn't think I would. Um, so that's kind of been, you know, there's challenges there, but I think there's been a lot of positive outcome um, and a lot of, you know, changes for the better in terms of um, representation and involvement with some some ways to go, but I think um, things are going in a really in a good direction. It's very encouraging. Yeah, I definitely have been um, at NC State's lab in the welding lab. One of the you know only two girls in the class. It mm -hmm. does get intimidating every now and then. So yeah, <laughs> it's very important to surround yourself with good people. Um, Dr. Pitlow, do you want to share? Yeah, for me it was the. It's just the scale of agriculture, right? The Midwestern agriculture that was, uh, that's something I've never seen before, right? Um, so if you, uh, back in India, you know, uh, here are four acres of crop and primarily rice uh, and uh, sugar cane. Those are the crops you're used to see and there's maize too. Uh, but, you know, uh, I started my grad program in Kentucky, right? So it was an eye opener for me, you know, the uh, the Midwestern row crop uh, systems. Um, so if I have to identify some challenges, the big thing was, you know, so how do Midwestern farming work? Uh, you know, so uh, what are the planting seasons? You know, so what are the cultural practices? You know, mm -hmm. so I had to do a um, lot of uh, background work to understand how things work um, before I could actually start uh, looking into the research. You know? So sure. so it's been a great journey. Uh, I learned so much uh, because of all the support I got from my former advisors and colleagues. So that's really interesting. And, and uh, talking to some of our other like Indian graduate students mm -hmm. and students from like Southeast Asia, they've said the same thing that, mm -hmm. you know, it's just so new kind mm -hmm. of coming into this like commodity row crop agriculture system here. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, you're used to small shareholder farmers, mm -hmm. right. And the challenges that they face, but, yep. but here it's a totally different, uh, totally different ball game in terms of technology use and then what the corresponding challenges are, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so seeing, you know, that larger agriculture, um, what are kind of some of some defining problems that, um, Dr. Pitlow, you might think, autonomy could solve and then Dr. Young, you know, some robotics that could solve even in water management and such. And so I think we'll doc start with Dr. Pitlow this time. Yeah, so I think um, in terms of uh, row crop production, you know, uh, we could, um, to begin with, we can identify some low risk operations um, um, where robotics could be used as an entry point. Because if you think about planting operation, that's uh, that's a very uh, risky operation. When I say risky, like 
it's not, it might not be directly ready for full automation, you know, but something like, okay, soil sampling, or if you want to do cover crop planting, so which are uh, auxiliary operations, if you want to think about that way, which are not very time sensitive. So those, those, those are the places where I think we can really uh, introduce automation uh, to, to help out with the overall farming enterprise, you know, so like how does it add value to the farmer? Uh, so that's what I think about when I'm looking at automation and what are some of the opportunities and some of the problems that robotics can solve. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my experience is less with kind of the large row cropping systems, but more with sort of specialty crops or other agricultural products. I'm working a lot with aquaculture and forestry and kind of fruits and vegetables and um, even breeding programs. So I guess when I think of challenges and where thinking of robotic solutions is useful is where there is, um, at least where I've experienced and is either um, like task, the task should be automated where it's either a labor issue or it's very challenging or it's um, labor intensive process. That's kind of a, um, a key thing where automation can come into play or also where uh, maybe you don't have the data necessary to make key management decisions. And so filling a data gap, um, if those platforms can fill that gap easily, um, I think that's also really useful. So as an example, kind of looking at coastal aquaculture, um, we have a project ongoing now to use robotics to monitor water quality where that monitoring hasn't really been happening to see if we can better identify and predict when closures might happen due to poor water quality to better equip um, aquaculture producers with the tools to decide whether or not to make key harvest decisions for things like oysters and shellfish. Um, and then the other project that I mentioned with La Valley Pine, um, you know, if you can imagine these massive pine trees with hundreds of thousands of bags that people go up in these lift trucks and put every single bag on and tie it by hand and go up there multiple times in the season to do controlled cross pollinations to produce seed. That's an extremely labor intensive process. So even, you know, adding in layering automation, if you're not completely replacing the human, that's not always the goal, but it's really developing things that are assistive um, and they're providing key information um, or reducing costs in some way. I love hearing about, you know, agricultural systems that are outside of the norm of, of what we do out here in Nebraska and in the Midwest. Um, and you mentioned specialty crops there as well, Dr. Young. Would you mind kind of maybe explaining to us what some of the differences are in terms of the requirements and constraints that autonomous systems and robots face for, for navigation, for uh, kind of dexterity and, and all these different tasks that they may have to perform across these different environments and, and how that affects, you know, how you design them? Yeah, sure. And it's, I mean, that's a, a challenging question to address because even within specialty crops, even within a single crop, depending on the cultivation and production kind of style management style, there's differences, right? You know, greenhouse versus not greenhouse or some of these things. So, I mean, I think in general, um, the tasks that robotics are being developed for are a little bit, um, a little bit different. Like you mentioned, dexterity, so things like harvesting or pruning, um, we're collecting very high resolution data about shape, color, form to predict yield or predict harvest, things like that. Um, you know, the, the, I think the farms tend to be a little bit um, 
smaller scale, not always, but, you know, a little bit of a smaller scale compared to the large acreage situations you see um, in Nebraska. So that's a little bit different, but, you know, we're trying to make really precise movements and adjustments to image or harvest, you know, a, a fruit or a vegetable. It's kind of the dexterity and things are at a much finer scale, um, which is challenging, but then there's trade-offs in terms of, you know, throughput and, um, the types of technologies where you might have a really wide row gap and something like a vineyard or orchard. And so navigation becomes less of an issue. You're not trying to, you know, row keep between really precise inches, but then the dexterity of that manipulator needs to be, you know, super precise and spot on. So I think it's just each system definitely has their own challenges. Um, just very, very different. Sure. And I guess one of the one additional follow up question there in terms of aquaculture, I'm imagining that that navigation may be a little bit different too. Are you trying to avoid, you know, fish or, you know, just random, uh, you know, sea creatures that may be in the way out there? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So we're mostly working with shellfish. So they're kind of in these either floating bag systems or if they're more natural system kind of at the bottom. Um, so they have different floating systems. So um, you know, if they're not on the surface, you're kind of okay, but there's other surface obstacles, such as people recreating or other boats or areas where it might be too shallow. So you're integrating those different types of navigation sensors to sense above the water and also below um, is, is challenging. Um, and this is, of course, you know, for open coastal aquaculture systems, there's, of course, you know, onshore more closed systems where you can probably have more in situ type of permanent sensors installed. But when we're kind of dealing with these coastal systems, it's then they're very, very dynamic. You know, water, water moves. Um, just curious uh, for those unfamiliar kind of with aquaculture, um, is there anything like commercially are people using robotics or is this kind of just like research based? So, you know, that's a really good question. And this is also a space that I've kind of been introduced in the last year or two. So. Um, but once we kind of got this project up and running, being familiar with others working in this space, it's definitely coming up to speed, I think, where other agricultural, um, you know, technologies kind of have been in the past, you know, five years, 10 years. So there's definitely folks working on this space. We've met with companies in, for example, Canada or like the Northeast, where there's a lot of aquaculture production and they're developing, you know, drones for collecting samples, but kind of the same thing we're working towards um, water quality monitoring, food safety and health type of things. Um, very new companies, typically that process is, you know, going out and taking grab samples. So automating that sampling process is something that agencies and producers are interested in. Um, and then I met with a couple kind of entrepreneurs who are interested in developing like robotic systems that actually have the method in which the oysters are grown is actually mobile. So you can kind of sense and predict where the better places might be for, um, you know, salinity, temperature, those factors that affect growth. And you could actually kind of actuate and move sort of like floating barges. So kind of larger scale robotic technologies, because um, it's also interesting oysters early in there. Um, production can be in places where water quality is actually poor and they can help filter that water. And then as they get closer to harvest, you move them into areas with better water quality so that they don't have any food safety issues. So there's some interesting kind of automation as far as the movement and production of oysters in these larger scale um, systems. Yeah, that is super interesting. And, you know, 
those who aren't familiar with aquaculture, I'm sure um, will really enjoy like hearing about that. Um, But Dr. Pitla, can you share with us kind of the extent of autonomy commercially available in row crop systems right now? Yeah. So, you know, I think if you look at both crop and animal systems, you know, uh, robotic milking stations are probably the most matured, you know, they've been on for a while. But in terms of row crop production, I think it's still in the early stages. Um, the, um, there's a lot of startup companies in this um, area looking to have uh, robots for weeding, uh, primarily, you know, uh, especially with herbicide resistant weeds. Um, they basically do targeted spraying or actual mechanical uh, operation to remove weeds. Uh, but I think uh, the big OEMs, you know, I don't know if you saw recently, John Deere advertised their autonomous uh, tractor, um, fully autonomous tractor. Um, um, and then uh, uh, Case New Holland in collaboration with Raven, they have a dot platform. So uh, that is a robotic platform. And then they, they call it Omni Drive and Omni Power, I believe. So, so those are the other two systems. And other interesting company is uh, Sabanto Ag. They have uh, swamps of uh, uh, tractors uh, that can do tillage, that can do planting. So, so this is all within just last one year. I've seen uh, all these uh, uh, trends, you know. So, so I think definitely uh, the next five years is going to be a lot more different. So hopefully we'll see more and more robotic technologies mature and farmers actually get to use them. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of growth. I mean, you, t- you mentioned mm-hmm. the autonomous ADAR tractor from mm-hmm. John Deere, you mentioned Sabento, who we've, we've had on the podcast here. Um, one of the things that, that I kind of wanted to ask today with both of you kind of being in, a, in an academic position, what does the interplay between academia and the private sector look like within autonomy and robotics? What do you think it should look like? What does it look like today? Um, and how can it best be leveraged to improve outcomes for farmers? So my philosophy is, you know, whether we are in academia or industry or um, ultimate customer is the producer who uses these technologies uh, on the field, right? So so I always, with my research, I look at uh, use-inspired research. Uh, so talking to producers, what are the bottlenecks, you know, or if there is going to be a robot on the farm, uh, what are you going to use it for, right? Um, uh, so if a robot can save time and time is money, right? So uh, which operation would that be? So, so that's where I start, you know, uh, asking questions about if I can do this research, how is it impactful? Um, When I do that, this also aligns well with what industry is looking at, right? So because ultimately, again, the end user and customer is the producer, right? So uh, I think that's where, uh, uh, as a researcher, if I align uh, more with what is needed on the field, um, uh, that I can build more synergies with the industry while contributing to the scientific community also, you know. You know, there's a lot of different models that exist out there in the academic industry world, right? Whether it's funded research by industry or collaboration with industry, um, there's, you know, depending on what the goal is, but at least, you know, that probably varies depending on what your research is on for sure. So from from my perspective, um, at least the kind of problems and things that my group works on and my students work on, I think are a little bit farther out. So I like to think of the technologies that we're developing kind of in seeing a a problem and maybe we're trying to 
Um, for example, the pollination project is just a good example where being the first to kind of explore this space. And I think we can learn a lot of things where then maybe we get to a certain point and collaborate with industry and they, you know, take it and really get it into a, um, a format that is commercializable, right? But a lot of that kind of fundamental work has been done. Um, so kind of keeping that forward looking vision, um, having a little bit of freedom to experiment and pursue things that um, may or may not be what the final, um, you know, on farmer type of technology looks like, but kind of pursuing things from that um, research perspective. So, you know, just as an example too, we were working with um, a tech company um, that was interested in understanding like this whole problem of aquaculture because they know ag tech is important and they kind of wanted to lay the infrastructure and be prepared for when a lot of tech develops in that space. So it's kind of just working and engaging with um, industry partners and exchanging information um, is kind of on the way that uh, we've approached it. I think, you know, in academia, depending on what your research group does, industry is very, very good at getting things commercially ready and doing kind of that type of research. And um, it's been fun to have a little more explorative freedom for some things as well. So I think there's been some um, complementary work there as far as working, collaborating with um, different industry partners. How do you envision um, extension supporting like the integration of autonomy in agriculture production or aquaculture production, you know, industries like that? I mean, I think in, in general, extension is extremely critical and being that link between, you know, research and stakeholders. Um, and I think that role can be different depending on the technology, whether it's technology that's commercially available and they provide information about whether or not to adopt, or if so, how to use that technology to best provide value. Um, or if it's, you know, I've given some presentations on um, pre-COVID on, you know, what technologies out there kind of, as was mentioned um, in the startup space, right? Like what to prepare for in the next couple of years, what to keep an eye open for. Um, so that's more of like an awareness information um, kind of position that extension holds. But I think no matter what kind of where that role is on that spectrum, I think, you know, it's extremely important to keep um, folks like that engaged. You know, I think in research projects, um, we probably both have or partner with extension personnel or growers or things like that to make sure we're not developing these technologies in a bubble, right? That's not good for anyone. So um, I think bringing those folks in and stakeholders in from the beginning, even if you don't expect that technology to be you know, ready in the immediate future, I think it's um, really important to have everyone involved from the beginning. It's all super, super interesting. I think the way that extension is going to have to kind of reinvent itself uh, over the next you know, five to 10 years is going to be really interesting as mm -hmm. autonomy and, and more of these digital technologies start to affect the, the farm gate and maybe the, uh, the fish gate uh, a little bit more. Um, but we're kind of getting into a more fun part of the interview here where we start to think a little bit more futuristically and not so much about, you know, what is kind of the current state of things, but where can autonomy go and what opportunities are available? Um, and, and one of the first questions I'd kind of like to ask in that vein of thought is, what are some of the key resources or fundamental improvements uh, that we really need in order to either increase the speed of aut autonomous technology development or make autonomous technology more commercially viable, kind of take that next step 
Yeah, so at least uh, for me in the row crop uh, production world, um, so I think uh, some of the key elements today in autonomy is, you know, your RTK GPS and uh, some sort of camera or LIDAR technology for perception. But I, I still think that we need more information in, in terms of the 3D environments that the, the tractors are working in or the robots are working in. Um, uh, almost like a, you need to have a good uh, 3D model of the farm, you know, uh, so that we could we could do fully autonomous operations. Um, and also, I think uh, uh, farmers have multiple fields. It's in a farm. It's just not one field, right? Right. The the robots have to go from one field to another autonomously. So how does that look like? I mean, it's talking about future, right? Mm -hmm. So you have autonomous tractors. You have maybe autonomous cars, right? So how do they interact? Like when. Mm your autonomous tractors are going from one field to another. So, so all these, uh, they, uh, there are a lot of fascinating questions and, uh, but are very important uh, to realize this uh, fully uh, autonomous farm or fully auto automated tractors. Yeah, I mean, fully agree with just, you know, the need for advances and kind of perception across different dynamic environments. Um, we don't know two fields are the same, two farms are the same, that gets exasperated when you have specialty crops, those types of things. Um, but the, the comment about off-road vehicle interaction made me also think about the aspect of kind of human automation interaction, human robot interaction, whereas these technologies get smarter and maybe go longer and longer, um, being able to operate on their own. Um, what does that interaction look like? What level of autonomy do they have? how involved is the human? You know, I think it's important to make, keep in mind that these technologies, at least I don't think the goal is to completely remove the human from the process, but to rather complement and maybe, you know, what type of alerting systems, how involved should they be in terms of communication with the human operator? Um, what happens when a system fails? I don't know, I don't, I don't have a Tesla, but for people who do, you know, you can't, they're not as straightforward to fix. Um, as maybe older mechanical vehicles, you have to take them in, get them serviced in this digital world. So I think some of those are also interesting questions where making sure that people are not, um, you know, frustrated or that they're able to get value out of these technologies as their capabilities improve. Um, and designing automation, I think is gonna be a key, design human automation interaction, I think is gonna be a key part of that. Yeah, I agree with uh, Sierra. There is uh, so much in, about uh, human-robot interaction fields other than agriculture. But, uh, and then uh, we are actually working on a project <laughs> related to that is, uh, can we use gesture control to work with robots? Um, so uh, especially, you know, how do uh, a field uh, 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 producers in the field, you know, let's say if you look at a vegetable operation, right? So if they're picking vegetables and they want to summon a robot to come to them to pick up vegetables. so. Wouldn't it be nice to have like a gesture control where you wave at the robot and it comes, you know? So that uh, that's a, a, a active project that we are looking into is um, using machine vision. Can we identify hand gestures, like mm. typical hand gestures and convert that into robot commands? So, yeah, but then in the future, I think I agree with Sierra, like human has to be in the loop, right? Uh, the cobot situation. So how do they all seamlessly work together. Are there any concerns um, with like autonomy and robotics functioning in the agriculture space? Not necessarily the adoption of those technologies, but like the actually functioning in those spaces? 
Yeah, I think uh, safety and uh, liability, uh, those are all really important, especially if you're talking about big machinery, right? So 300, 400 horse tractors, fully autonomous. Uh, so we, we really need to have redundant safety systems. Uh, and then uh, also something that not a lot of people are thinking about, the security of these. Ensuring safety and liability is an interesting question. I think one thing that's good is that we have the autonomous kind of vehicle industry going ahead of this you know they're a little bit they've been doing this for a little while and there's been um i think there's going to probably be some precedent that could be useful as far as you know what happens when there is an accident how do you determine if it's user error or if it's the fault of the company developing the technologies you know we've seen this with some of the vehicles or people pretend like they're fully autonomous, but they're not intended to be used that way, right? So ensuring that things are being used in the right way is also going to be, um, I think, an important part of this as well. What's kind of your vision um, for autonomy, robotics, and specialty crops, um, agriculture within, you know, kind of like a three-year vision? And then if you want to, if you have a 10-year vision, kind of share that too. Uh, that's a really good question, and I don't know if my vision is the right one. I'm sure this will vary depending on who you ask, but I think what I'm most excited about is that, you know, we have all these startups, all these folks working in the space. I think it would just be really awesome to get more platforms in the field tested across diverse kind of operations. Um, you know, you sometimes see these one-off case studies or small scale testing, just a few adopters, but I think it would be really neat to see um, for the things that are commercially available, just kind of more adoption, at least in the short term to see, um, you know, accelerate that development period, right? Where you learn, you learn more, the more you use these things. And so I think that will be, um, you know, I think for some of these technologies are at a critical point where it'll just be really cool if more folks start using them and hopefully they work as intended. Um, I think some of that's probably a little bit of an unknown. Um, I guess right now I feel like we're at this point where there's so much potential. So it'd be cool to see some of that potential start to be um, start to be realized. I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the uh, the the point about actually having to use something in the field to know how it works is, I think, so critical and often missed. I think there's kind of this perception out there amongst adopters that you need to have everything figured out before it gets to the field. And it is kind of this fine line, right, where you, you need to be able to offer something commercially, mm -hmm. provide value, but at the same time, in order for it to really get out to scale commercially and get correct, it, it really needs to be picked up and used to some extent. So it's a, it's a delicate balance. For sure. Santosh. Yeah. So for me, I'll start with a 10 year vision. So, <laughs> so, well, uh, imagine like swarms of robots uh, working in the field, um, solving the most pressing issues, like let's say targeted weed management um, and soil health management, which involves car crop planting um, and uh, co-working with, uh, with the producer seamlessly uh, with no technical hangups. Uh, I think that's what I <laughs> envision uh, 10 years from now. Uh, wow. I think in the next three years, you know, I think if we if we have a very user friendly robot that could do uh, some uh, mapping uh, of uh, uh, problem areas in the field mm -hmm. and then cover crop planting in the field, just even a single robot, but uh, the ability to 
for farmers to actually getting used to the technology and doing it uh, by themselves in the field and amplifying what they can do. Uh, I think that's kind of what I have uh, with one robot, you know, uh, in the next three years. Uh, yeah. And then extrapolate it to multiple swarms, you know, and modular machines. So from that perspective, are there some management practices that you think are possible with robotics that are not currently possible with manned machinery um, that you could see farmers getting into? I mean, we've mentioned cover crops, but are there, are there some other opportunities that you've seen out there for robotics to expand management opportunities? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, very highly precise, uh, specific nitrogen management could be another thing. If you have a AI-enabled robot that is looking at, you know, uh, uh, the current state of the nutrients on the plants and uh, be there in the field 24 by 7, you know, applying yeah. very precisely, you know, goes back to the fertigation aspects. Very similar if you if you don't have pivots in the field, you know, you could be using the robots uh, doing nitrogen management, you know. Sure. So that's something I think is very timely and very important given the fertilizer uh, uh, costs and then uh, uh, the issues we are having with runoff, you know. So I think uh, 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 that will be a great application for one of the important management practices in my view. Sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Dr. Young, for, for you, have you noticed any like management practices as, as people have maybe seen uh, some of these autonomous vehicles, you know, entering their environments. Have you seen any management practices that people are like, oh, well, I could use that for this or, or that you have just identified yourself as being an opportunity out there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one space that is, you know, viable now is using advanced sensors that can see things that we can't see to understand kind of what's happening from a crop physiology standpoint, like disease um, early disease detection, as I just mentioned, you know, night, uh, nutrient deficiencies, things like that, um, to where you might be able to do those things in a more timely manner and a more precise manner. So kind of piggybacking off what uh, Dr. Pitla just said. Um, and so, you know, also using these for, for new things, for example, we just had a, um, a paper using hyperspectral imaging to differentiate between hemp cultivars and growth stages and management in hemp is really interesting because um, if you manage it in such a way that the THC content exceeds like the legal threshold, it's problematic. So, um, and that can be a function of, of management, also genetics and growth stage and the cultivar itself. So if you can start to use technologies to um, better understand kind of what's happening um, in the field that you might not be able to tell kind of at all, just walking through manual looking and scouting um, those types of things, um, kind of assisting with making those types of decisions about um, harvest or application using these, these sensors and AI models that can help make those types of predictions. So if someone uh, wanted to learn more about your research and what you're working on with autonomy and agriculture production, um, where can they go to find out more? And we'll start with Dr. Pitla. Uh, mainly, I have a Twitter page, Santosh Pitla, uh, but uh, uh, UNL's uh, BSC webpage, you, you should easily find me there. So Cool. Awesome. And Dr. Young? Yeah, same, big, uh, big on Twitter, at Sierra N. Young. Um, so you can follow me, try to keep everyone up to date on what's going on. And then, of course, you know, web pages with the university or 
you have any questions, also feel free to email me, just sierra.young at usu.edu. Happy to um, communicate that way as well. Fantastic. So one of the things we like to do here on the Farm Bits podcast is wrap up every interview with a piece of advice. And so the piece of advice that I would ask from each of you today is uh, what advice do you have for our listeners who are either interested in uh, adopting uh, autonomous technology into their farm operation uh, or uh, for those out there who are interested in pursuing a career in this field, what advice would you give to uh, for getting started and kind of heading down that career trajectory. And Dr. Young, I think we'll start with you here. Sure. So I'm going to tackle the second question um, for folks interested in, in working in this space. So um, my first piece of advice would be to just kind of get your hands dirty. Um, see if you can find someone working in the space or be familiar with the technology, get yourself a hobbyist drone, buy an Arduino, get familiar with sensing. And I think that's the best way. That's how I got interested in it was having really no experience and kind of diving headfirst into this. Um, you learn a lot and hopefully get excited and motivated along the way to take any next steps, whether that's, um, you know, a professional degree or kind of a career change move. I think just getting involved and not being shy to reach out if it's something that you don't feel like you have experience in because I think you'd find a lot of people are really excited to share their expertise and knowledge with um, anyone who wants to come listen and be involved. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there about the Arduino, just how accessible some of this technology is to just pick up and get your hands on and, and start working with. I think that's a really good point. Um, and Dr. Pitla, what is your advice? Yeah, after that question, I think, um, you know, um, agriculture is transforming at a really fast pace or evolving and technology is key for future sustainability and, uh, uh, you know, uh, food security, energy security, and so on. I think this is a very dynamic space. And uh, um, I think uh, this is a great uh, program to get into agriculture engineering. Um, uh, going back to Sierra's point, you know, tinkering and maker spaces, uh, there are great, great places to start, you know, yeah. um, and then get a professional degree in this uh, area. I think uh, if you're really looking to contribute to uh, uh, have an impact, you know, at a global and a local scale, I think this is a uh, great program to get into like agriculture. Thank you very much to Dr. Sierra Young and Dr. Santosh Pitla for joining us today on the Farm Bits podcast. It was really interesting to hear kind of an academic perspective. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of industry perspectives so far in the series, and so it was good to get their take on automation and robotics. Yeah, I think it was really good perspectives from um, getting an academic perspective versus our industry that we've had before. I really enjoyed um, learning and hearing about how um, how much autonomy and robotics can be kind of applied in every aspect of agriculture and, you know, aquaculture, even to forestry. And I think the um, potential for, you know, extension to kind of jump into robotics now and moving forward in academics um, is really going to be helpful into making autonomy and robotics kind of accessible and really implementing it on operations. Well, thanks for joining us today on the Farm Bits podcast, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, 
or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.